So, I'm drinking my coffee this morning, staring at the news as I usually do early in the morning. And there on the screen, there's this split screen, and on one part of the screen is this giant rocket ship, and it's going off into outer space. And the other side of the split screen is this woman. Uh, she has little or no expression on her face, and she's reading the or talking through the, the launching procedures. Apparently, SpaceX launched a great big rocket into space yesterday. And while that's going on, I'm watching the right side of the screen, and while I'm watching that, the rocket explodes, and it just smithereens. And the woman who, on the other side, on the other side of the split screen, doesn't break a smile or anything. She just totally no uh, expression whatsoever. And she says, we have experienced a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. <laughs> now, the people in the back, just off the camera, you know, they were throwing headsets. They were screaming at each other. This $450 million rocket, the biggest one that's ever been built, took years and years to make, just blew up into inch-sized pieces and scattered itself all over the Atlantic Ocean. But very calmly, she said that was just a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. And then the sports came on. There's apparently another rapid, unscheduled disassembly yesterday. Y'all don't get that? <laughs> I mean, did you not watch the sports this morning? <laughs> Ask somebody. Okay, so I'm here. I'm going to talk for a little bit, just kind of uh, uh, in and out on some, several different things. This is going to be a Thanksgiving sermon. It's not going to be evident until the last sentence, okay? So don't start looking for stuff. Uh, but it'll, it'll get you. It'll, we'll get there. Uh, and we're going to really move around a whole lot to get there. But I just want to share some thoughts with you that I've been reading and talking about uh, in our Bible class uh, over the past year and doing a lot of personal study on and just sort of see if it resonates with you, okay? So uh, we're in this together for about 30 minutes and then, uh, and then we'll see how it goes. Um, so, this fellow by the name of Jacob, a long, long time ago, probably about 1,800 years before Jesus was born, he goes into a land, he's been sort of disassociated with his family, uh, chased out of town, more or less, by his older brother for stealing his birthright. He goes into the land of Syria, uh, and he looks up his, his, um, uh, his family there, and while he's there, he meets a woman. In fact, it's a woman shepherd of odd things. He's sitting down by the water, and she brings her sheep down by the, uh, down by the uh, well. And he looks at her. He falls in love with her. She's apparently very beautiful. He's smitten by her, and he wants to marry her. The only problem is that the father-in-law, or his soon-to-be father-in-law, is not a very reputable person. He enlists him in a 14-year bond-servant relationship in order for him to pay the dowry off to marry that woman. Throughout Jacob's life, she's his favorite wife. He was tricked into marrying another woman, Leah, uh, prior to that. But, and that was okay. 
uh, she's, she's a nice lady, but, but bore him a number of sons. But his true love was Rachel. And so unfolds probably one of the greatest mysteries, I think, one of the biggest mysteries in the Old Testament. For you see, his grandfather, many years before, Abraham, had gone to the promised land, and in that promised land, he had sat down with a fellow by the name of Ephron, and he and Ephron bargained and dickered over a place to bury his family. And so they bought a place called the Cave of Machpelah. It's not very big. It's probably in the land, uh, uh, or it's in the city currently of uh, Hebron uh, in Gaza on the West Bank. There's a big mosque there in its place now called the Cave of the Patriarchs. But nevertheless, he bargains with Ephron. He takes the first price that comes out of Ephron's mouth, which is 400 shekels of silver, which is by far an extravagant price to pay for anything in the world at that time. But that's how they bargained. They started out with an extravagant price, and then they sort of, you know, wormed each other down to the right price. Ephron throws out this term. He says, 400 shekels of silver, and Abraham said, sold. No bargaining, sold. And everybody in the meeting knew that that was way too much to pay for a cave in Hebron. But Abraham knew that something's value was, the value you placed on something was what you were willing to give up for it. He was willing to give up 400 shekels of silver. And in that grave, in that grave Abraham was buried along with his wife Sarah, along with his son Isaac. Jacob himself would be buried there. He would be brought down from Egypt where he was with Joseph uh, uh, during that period of time and his bones would be carried back or his body would be carried back and buried in the cave of Machpelah. Even Ishmael was buried there and so was Leah, the not so favored wife. But not his favorite wife, not Rachel. And therein lies the mystery. Instead, she's taken off to a little town called Ephrath, a word in Hebrew which means the woman. And she's buried by the side of the road with no explanation. And if you're a Bible student, you're saying, eh, what? Mystery number one. Mystery number two. When Moses goes up into the land of, or goes, starts his way into the promised land, he carries himself and he carries, he takes himself up to Mount Horeb and there he meets God. And God dwells in unapproachable light. In fact, the light is so bright and so overwhelming that Moses' own face bleaches out. And the people of Israel cannot look at him because he has looked at God. And from that point on, that light or a part of that light which will be called the glory of God, will guide Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, taking them to the promised land. And as they're guided through the wilderness, they'll be led by a light, a luminous light-giving cloud, which will carry them from Egypt to the promised land. And at night when they stop and when they camp or when they, and sometimes they camped for years, that light would hover over the tabernacle. And when the high priest 
went in to offer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holy Places in front of the Ark of the Covenant, which was overlaid with gold. He would grind up frankincense. That word just means pure incense. It's only found one place in the world, on a tree on the side of a mountain in Arabia. They would grind up this frankincense, throw it on the mercy seat, that, that, over, that platform, pour the blood of the sacrificed lamb on that, and that light would appear between the tips of the two angels guarding the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the golden angels guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And in that light, God would confess, these are my people whom I have wed, and their sins are forgiven. And that went on after till the temple was uh, after the temple was built. We've come to refer to that as the Shekinah, the glory of God. And Israel could always assume or always depend on it being there. But in 587 BC, Nebuchadnezzar would come to each, could come to Judea, and he would tear up the temple. And he would ransack it and he would carry off all the implements in the temple itself and carry them off to a place that we now call Persia. And the Ark of the Covenant was never heard from again. Unless, of course, you watched Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. Because he found it. But in reality, we never heard from it again. We never saw that light again. Or did we? Second mystery. Now, now, roughly 600 or so years later, there's a wedding, a betrothal, an agreement, a covenant is, is, is bonded by a man and a woman to commit themselves in marriage. The betrothal usually lasted about a year, and in that betrothal period, the groom would ready a place for the wife to live, and he would also save up money for whatever's left to pay on the dowry that he had agreed to on with the, with the wife's husband, uh, father, thank you. <laughs> and all that time that the, the wife's mother and her compatriots and her relatives would sew the most beautiful wedding dress of all time in their mind. When the wedding day came, roughly a year later, she'd be placed on a platform like a pallet she would be carried by her relatives down through the main street of town, hoisted up for everyone to see, and everyone in the town would stand because a wedding in Judea was a godly thing. It was an act of worship. It symbolized God's relationship to Israel, and it was known to be that way. And so you didn't discard it, you didn't look at it lightly, if you were a man or if you were a woman and the, and, the, and the procession came by, you stood, you stood in silence. And after the bride was presented to the bridegroom at his home, then a wedding feast would occur. The bride would, uh, actually the bridegroom would stand beside a little tray and the well-wishers would come by and greet the groom, congratulate him, and drop a couple of coins into the plate. That was a religious experience. And it was so important that a woman 
who was a widow and poor, would save back two coins, wouldn't eat if necessary, but would save back those two coins to have them ready to go to the wedding feast of someone uh, that they knew and drop those coins in that tray. That'll happen a little bit later in Jesus' life as the bridegroom once again stands by the tray and the widow comes in and drops her two coins into the place. It was the most important day in a woman's life, this wedding. In a country that didn't really share a great affection and a great respect for women, this was her day. And yet in this particular case, it would never happen. Because she was found to be with child before the wedding. In this part of the world, that was considered betrayal and sin because she had broken the wedding vow. She could be divorced, she could put put away, she could even be stoned. Probably not without Rome's agreement, but in the olden days, she could be stoned. Her husband, who had every right to disassociate himself with her, would actually share the blame and take her to be his wife. And in doing that, he shared part of her scorn, took it upon himself. He would be excluded from all of the uh, town meetings. His integrity would be in question for the rest of his life because the city would believe he too had sinned. She's nine months pregnant and he puts her on the back of a donkey, travels three and a half days from Nazareth to this town of Ephrath. By the way, they changed the name of it to Bethlehem. And they did that because it's, it's six miles short of Jerusalem. If you're coming up from the south and it's the place where all the travelers and sojourners stop by to be refreshed, to get, to get a meal, to drink water, to change clothes. And oftentimes, they stayed there overnight in the inns because it was so much cheaper than Jerusalem, which is why it was hard to find room there. And so they changed the name from City of the Woman to the City of Bread, because that's what Bethlehem means in Greek, or Hebrew, sorry. The city of bread. And anyway, she's six months, pre- six months, nine months pregnant. She rides a donkey into this Bethlehem to give birth to a child in a manger, which we all know that. She would take the child, her and her husband would take the child, and, and would go to the temple at the, a few days later to, to uh, dedicate him at the temple. A priest would take the son. He would, he would uh, take the, the man-child and he would, uh, he would bless him, but he would turn to the mother and he, say, he would say, many sorrows will pierce your soul. I can't find anybody, maybe you can, I can't find anybody in the Bible who ever chose to follow Christ or God and their lives got easier 
I just can't find it. And maybe you can, but I can't. So nevertheless, the wedding, I mean, the, 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 the birth takes place in this little town known for the city of bread. Originally called the city of the woman. But there's more to it than that. Because Bethlehem was really known for two things. One, the city of bread, or the city of uh, uh, bread. (laughs) But also it was a city that was designated by the priesthood. Because you see, every every year, a couple of times a year, a special sacrifice had to be offered in the temple, a sacrifice for sins. And in that sacrifice, it had to be a special unblemished lamb. And the priest had decided 100 years or so before Christ, or not, well, a little bit less than that, maybe 60 or 70 years before Christ, that what they really needed was a special flock of sheep that couldn't be uh, uh, molested by other animals, couldn't fall and hurt themselves, that would be taken care of and nursed and, and, and all of that, and watched over by special shepherds, shepherds who had been chosen by the priesthood themselves probably Levite shepherds. And it was their job to make sure that those animals stayed in pristine condition for when the time came to get a lamb to offer as a sacrifice, those sheep would be taken. It was those shepherds. It was those shepherds who were attending those sheep by night when heaven opened up and told them about a baby that was born. A very special sacrifice. And the message was delivered by 400 million angels. I don't know if that number's correct. The Bible only says a heavenly host. When I get into Revelations and I try to define what heavenly host is, it says it's either 100 million or 200 million. So without, without any better explanation, I just take it upon myself to say a couple of hundred million angels deliver the message to these special shepherds watching these special sheep about a birth that may be something very, very special. Let's go back to the first mystery and then the second mystery. The woman that was buried by the side of the road of the city of the woman was named Rachel. The word Rachel in Hebrew is very difficult to ascertain, but we have a couple of clues. The first clue is that the first part of her name means female lamb, Rosh. The second part of her lamb, the second part of her name is pretty easy to ascertain because it's El. El in Chaldean is the term for God. You know, Emmanuel, God with us. Bethel, city of God. Israel, people of God. The suffix El means of God. So if you translate her name literally, you get the Lamb of God. Well, that's very interesting. Because you see, back in those days, 
where that came about was that shepherds really and truly prayed for a female lamb. Because female lambs in the flock made the flock grow faster, much, much faster. Because not only could they give milk and wool, they could also have babies. And so the poor shepherds would often find themselves hovering over the lamb, praying for, that the, praying that the sheep would be a female. And when it did, they would call it Rachel, the Lamb of God. Okay, this gets even more interesting as it goes along. Second mystery. There are men in Persia studying the sky. Astronomers. Because you see, that's what the word magi means in Persian. It means astronomer. Someone who studies the sky. And as they're studying the sky, they find a light that they're not really comfortable with. And don't understand. And so they're scrubbing the, 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 the volumes or whatever, the scrolls, trying to figure out what it is. And they don't really, they're not really capable of understanding. It's just appeared there in Persia. And apparently you can follow it. Much like Israel followed that light in Canaan. The New Testament translators call it a star. It's the Greek word aster. We get our term asteroid from that word. Zodhiates, Greek scholar, uh, Greek scholar Zodhiates, says that the word aster can mean a heavenly body, but it can also mean a light-giving luminous body. Not necessarily a star. So men in Persia see this light, this light-giving luminous body. They're able to follow it. You know, when I was a kid and I read, this, I read the, the Christmas story uh, when I was you know, 12, 13 years old, I would go outside, you know, around Christmas time, and I would look at the sky and I would think, how on earth do you follow a star? I mean, I do that. This star is different. This, this light-giving, luminous body shines in the daytime. They can follow it in the daytime. And it comes over and hovers and, and hovers over a place where the Christ child is born. Sound familiar again? They bring gifts. They don't know what they're going to encounter there when they come and when they find this place where this light has suddenly become stationary and shining over this spot. And they bring gifts of gold, symbolizing royalty. Gold always symbolized royalty because the kings always took all the gold. The currency of the day was silver. You couldn't spend gold. It all belonged to the king, period. So gold was a symbol of royalty. They brought frankincense, which always symbolized divinity. 
That pure incense was a part of the temple worship itself. It was a part of every religion. And they brought myrrh, a spice that the body would be covered with when it was buried. Myrrh was a human emblem. So these group of wise Persians come in bringing, come in with an offering of royalty, divinity, and humanity for this child that they've never seen or heard of before, that they're led to by a light that they never really saw or understood before to this particular place. Okay. Pull it all together, Nathan. Time. <laughs> Rambling thoughts, right? So there it is. Get it in your mind now. The beloved wife who wore the name Lamb of God won't be buried in the family plot along with all the other ancestors, but left to be buried in some inconsequential town on the side of a road that would later be called the City of Bread. Another woman, a virgin, who never knew a man, would give birth to a child in that very same city now called Bethlehem. And the world pays no attention to it, even calls it a sin. The child born there, in that place, in that city of bread, would call himself the bread of life and would emerge from there to offer himself as a ransom for the world that's been held hostage by its own sin. Special shepherds guarding special sheep bound to be slain and offered as a sacrifice would witness the presentation of the ultimate sacrifice in the presence of 200 million angels. Men of Persia would somehow recognize that light, recognize a light that once led the people of God to the promised land. That light now coming to rest That light now coming to rest on a child in a place. One who would eventually grow up and call himself the light of the world and would be willing to lead anyone who followed him to the throne room of God himself. He would be willing to offer anyone who would follow him a personal introduction to God Almighty. And they would be introduced to him as his friend. And then he, according to 1 Peter, 1 Corinthians, Revelation, take the crown from his head and put it on him or her. Now that's something to be thankful for. That's something to appreciate. 
Kevin and the praise team come up. No eye has seen, no ear has ever heard, no human mind has ever conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. If that's not in your future, that throne room introduction that I just described, then you too have something to be thankful for because you can change that at any time. And that's what the encouragement is today. There's so much waiting for the people of God. So much more than we can conceive. And it would just be such a shame to miss that. So think on those thoughts. Think on the mightiness of God that we serve. And the abilities he has to offer us not only something that we can't conceive, but himself as well. There'll be a shepherd down front. There'll be another shepherd and his wife in the back. Uh, two, I think, uh, if you need to converse, if you need to pray, or if you need to turn your life over to God and just say, I give up. I haven't done a good job leading my own life, and now I'm going to let Christ lead mine. We can, we can accommodate you. We can bury you with him in baptism today in this place. And a whole new creature starts to, starts to live. And again, that's something to be thankful for. So consider that as together we all stand and sing.